Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Good morning and welcome to Cox Media Houston's public affairs show FYI. My name is Susie Hanks. It is pink October. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so with us today is Dr. Daniel Rubine with MammoSafe. Good morning, Dr. Rubine. Good morning, Susie. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming in here. We um, uh, got in touch with each other last year during uh, uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month because you have MammoSafe, which is a, a mobile mammography um, uh, van. And we had uh, one of the guys on our show come in and actually get it done. And I wanted to thank you very much for having us in and having us do that. But it really, I think, was very popular with listeners and they wanted to know all about uh, mobile mammography, but also want to know all about uh, breast cancer. So we're going to talk about that. Thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure to be here. Um, first of all, tell us about mobile mammography and MammoSafe, what you do. Well, I think the most important thing to remember, uh, first of all, is that the regulations for mobile mammography and for stationary mammography that would be performed in a hospital or a clinic are exactly the same. So women do not have to be concerned about quality or about uh, how the uh, mammogram is done because the state uh, and the federal government actually uh, examine and uh, interview annually to make sure that we're staying at the at the highest level and at the top of the game. And in fact, the last time we were inspected, we got the highest rating that is available. Yeah. So it's a real important uh, uh, factor because uh, sometimes people have concerns about it. So I think we can allay those concerns, number one. The main uh, advantage of the mobile mammography is actually uh, the fact that it brings the exam to the woman. So the idea behind MammoSafe uh, was to reach out to women all over the greater uh, Houston metropolitan area who are busy. They have jobs, they have professions, they have families, they have many responsibilities. They may just be taking care of a a large family at home and not have time to go and spend two or three hours to get a mammogram done. So we make arrangements with employers all over the area, with uh, churches, with nonprofit organizations, with women's organizations to schedule a day, uh, give them plenty of notice ahead of time, and then run it basically like I would run my office, which means we communicate with the patient ahead of time, we uh, get information from them that will make their appointment go smoothly, give them a chance to answer questions and fill out paperwork if they would like to ahead of time, so that really the cycle time for the mammogram, meaning from the time you arrive to the time you leave, could be as little as 20 minutes without ever feeling rushed. We're fortunate to have a wonderful staff of women who uh, are on board uh, in a very private setting. That's another thing that I think is really important about mobile mammography. Uh, The mammogram is done behind two separate closed doors. So we've never had a problem, never had a question about privacy, uh, and that's very important because I think women should feel safe and secure when this is being done. Uh, And, of course, I read the the mammograms uh, personally. uh, You know, I have over 20 years of experience and absolutely do my best every time I see one. Yeah. Um, So you roll up in the van. Tell me what the van looks like. It's a a 39-foot coach, uh, custom uh, constructed uh, for MammoSafe. Uh, uh, I uh, actually watched over the construction during the course of a year. It was very interesting. 
uh, and it stemmed from my experience uh, over the last 20 years of watching how mobile mammography is delivered. It's not all done the way that we do it. In other words, having a reception room uh, that's like a doctor's waiting room, a separate dressing room, as I said, behind a closed door, and then a separate room beyond that where the mammogram is actually done. Um, it, it's uh, luxurious, actually, inside, very comfortable, uh, plenty of room. Uh, the, the goal, as I said, is to provide the mammogram in a safe, secure environment promptly but without ever making anyone feel rushed. Uh, our staff understands that some women may need a little extra time, may need a little more uh, discussion before the mammogram is done, and that's fine. If it takes somebody 25 minutes, 30 minutes, we don't time anyone because the next woman that comes in may be a busy vice president and she has only six minutes and wants to get in and out as fast as she possibly can, and we'll do what we can. We'll do a good quality exam no matter what happens, but we tailor it to each person. So the van is really, uh, it's a, it's attractive, I think. Uh, it's got a nice uh, outside, hard to miss. The bottom is pink, as you'd imagine. And uh, it's worked very well for us. Um, do uh, women need a, a prescription or a doctor to send them? Or, or, or is it, um, I, I guess, it's proactive to go ahead and just, and to have it done on your own, I guess, right? It is. It's a great question. And basically, a couple of things to keep aware are is uh, that, uh, the Affordable Care Act, among doing many other things, it did make mammography a preventive service. So it's typically covered by insurance 100%. We can't guarantee every case because we don't know every person's insurance, but that's generally the pattern. In terms of uh, needing a, a, a physician, at least in, in our practice, uh, we do require that the woman have a physician or a health care provider who agrees to accept the final report. And basically uh, what that divides into is what's called self-initiated and self-referred. Self-referred means you can just walk in, and it's it's okay to do this. We don't happen to accept it because I don't think it's a good, you know, I don't think it's a good methodology. But you can just show up and get a mammogram. The problem is in that situation, the radiologist becomes your doctor, and that's not a good idea. You want the radiologist to read the images, make an opinion, and then send it to somebody that is a professional that can help you navigate to the next step. So that becomes self-initiated, which means you can call MammoSafe and say, I'd like to have a mammogram done. My doctor is so-and-so. Here's the information, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have a way of obtaining the uh, the authorization, so to speak, so that we know that everyone is taken care of every step of the way. And even when that occurs, we have uh, methods in place to make sure the patients follow up. And it's not just us. This is something that's required by uh, the governing agency. Women may hear the term MQSA. It's actually the federal law that, that governs the practice of mammography, and there are actually a lot of good points in it. I'm not a huge fan of regulation, but I think in this case it really helps because it keeps everyone operating at a very high level uh, to make sure that things don't fall by the wayside. Yeah. We are talking with Dr. Daniel Rubine with MammoSafe. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Tell me about the recommendations for when it's time to get the mammogram. There's a lot of information out there, and some people are confused, I myself included, about when to start doing this. Well, I appreciate you asking that because one of the things that I work very hard to do, and I know many of my colleagues work very hard to do, is to allay that confusion. The short answer is women should have mammograms beginning at the age of 40 and every year after that. Not just my opinion. This is based on decades of population research that show that early detection starting at the age of 40 makes a difference in terms of survival. Where the confusion, at least most recently, came from was actually from government regulations, which 
kind of threw out the idea that, well, maybe you don't have to start at 40. Maybe you could start at 50 and do it every other year. The problem was they didn't really base it on data. And, and in fact, at least to my knowledge, there was not even a radiologist on the panel that made that recommendation. So it was a little bit uh, surprising, in fact, to all of us that such a thing could come out. And then, and I was interviewed actually at the time uh, by one of the local media organizations that came the day that that came out. And I said, it's, it's wrong. And I said, if you'll come back in a couple of years, you're going to see that someone will take the time to do the research and prove it. And in fact, someone did. Two radiologists at the University of Colorado said, okay, let's take the government's recommendation, do it every other year at 50, look at all the population statistics we have for the last four decades, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of women, and they came up with 65,000 more deaths from breast cancer. <laughs> Didn't make the news, unfortunately, so I appreciate your bringing it up so that we can point out to people that those recommendations weren't even included in the Affordable Care Act. So they made a recommendation, and then when they passed their own law, they didn't put it in there. So the bottom line is start at 40 every year after that. And then there are special situations where we certainly do mammograms before the age of 40. For instance, if a woman's mother was diagnosed younger than 40, we use what's called the 10-year rule. And this, again, is not mammosafe. This is nationwide, pretty much accepted by people who do this regularly. If the mom was diagnosed at 35, we'll do one mammogram at the age of 25. We don't start annual then, but it's just one look-see, so to speak, to make sure that this woman doesn't have an increased risk or doesn't need to be tested genetically or something like that, and also get a baseline mammogram. Yeah. What are some of the risk factors? Because we're talking about if your mother had it, so there mm-hmm. is some genetic um, predisposition. Tell me a little bit about that. Absolutely. Um, I suppose one could say, unfortunately, the main risk is being female. Uh, the The numbers are, uh, they can be frightening because it's one in eight. And I tell people, you know, if you're at Walmart and you're waiting in line with 10 other women, one of them has breast cancer whether she knows it or not. That's kind of the negative way to look at it. I think the the positive way is that there are such uh, improvements uh, in terms of treatment that it's very reasonable to be hopeful when a diagnosis of breast cancer is made. And I have to give that credit to my colleagues in the uh, uh, oncology field and in the radiation therapy field and in the surgical fields because they're really the ones that do the treatment. My job is to find it as soon as I can at the earliest possible stage. So number one risk factor is being female, about a one in eight chance or about 12.5% chance. At some time during a woman's life, she'll develop breast cancer and the risk increases with age. So more common in 60-year-old than in a 40-year-old. Other risk factors you mentioned, uh, genetics is a is a very important one because the, the people will hear it referred to as the BRCA gene, it's BRCA. That uh, genetic group does have uh, an increased risk uh, Testing positive for that gene does not guarantee that breast cancer will develop, and it doesn't necessarily put a woman in a very, very high-risk category. However, if certain parameters fall in place, a woman's risk can go as high as twenty, uh, as high as uh, 80%, which is staggering. I mean, that's really a situation where it needs to be addressed. And my wife and I actually have two personal friends over the past uh, three years that have undergone prophylactic mastectomy. It means they had mastectomy on both sides done. Uh, simply because of the fact that they had such a strong family history and they tested positive for the gene. So I'm not suggesting everyone would be in that situation. It's a very uh, delicate and very precise uh, method to come to that conclusion. And the best thing really is to consult with people who do genetic counseling because they understand how to interpret the results. I always tell people it's not a yes or no question or else we would just test everybody. So if you test negative, it doesn't mean you're not going to get it. And if you test positive, it doesn't mean you're going to get it. It just means that that information has to be put together in a way that makes sense for each individual woman. There's no 
one answer for everybody. That's an incredible tool that that women haven't had before. That's that in order to help make the decision. Absolutely, it's a great tool, and it's it, like, as I say, in the right hands, and, and it is. I mean, we have, we're very fortunate in Houston. We have many experts in that area to whom women can turn, and they have devoted their professional careers to understanding those genetic uh, uh, parameters and how to advise women. Yeah, tell me some other risk factors: smoking. Smoking increases the risk, not to the same extent that it does for lung cancer, but it does increase the risk. Obesity increases the risk. Um, uh, there are a number of smaller uh, methods that that uh, you know people can use to try to decrease the risk. For instance, you know if obesity is a risk factor, then of course exercise is a, a way to uh, decrease the risk. There are some. Um, dietary concerns that have been raised. Um, there's some data to show that basically without going into too much detail, it's just basically a good diet. You know, the same things that help prevent car, uh, heart disease have been known to have been shown to show some decrease in, in uh, the incidence of breast cancer. Yeah. When we're talking about risk factors, um, also want to talk about causes. The thing is that there's risk factors, but you don't really know the cause for a lot of it, do you? No, we don't. Uh, we don't uh, know the cause. Again, I have to give credit to my colleagues who are actively in the research field uh, who literally devote their lives to trying to find that cause. There have been many strides. Uh, they're, they're constantly putting out articles which are uh, very well uh, constructed and you know peer-reviewed that show individual steps. In other words, they're getting there. And and do I think they will find it? Absolutely. Do I know when? Of course not. I'm, uh, it could be tomorrow. Or it could be 10 years from now. But the bottom line is cancer is a a cell that just doesn't know how to stop dividing. That's really you know an oversimplification, but that's what it is. And once the researchers can understand what makes that cell break loose, so to speak, they can stop it from doing that. The way it is now, what we do is basically attack the, the cells and try to kill them, but there's a collateral loss of, you know, injuring normal tissue at the same time, which, of course, they try to minimize. Once they understand, though, I think once these researchers have come to a point where they understand what's causing that particular cell to do what it's doing, the, the, the treatment will change. It'll yeah. be targeted right at that cell type and only that cell type so right. that the, the arm, the, you know, the muscles in the arm won't know anything's going on because it's only the cancer cells that are being hit. Yeah, incredible. Tell me what you know about um, I had my cell phone in my bra and my mother yelled at me. Is this a myth? Is this a cause? Do we know if, it's, if it is or not? Tell me about that. The data that we have so far would say that's a myth. That's a myth. Uh, there's no, at least to my knowledge, there's no information that says that uh, the uh, output from a cellular phone or from other electronic devices increases the risk of breast cancer. Right. There's a lot of myths, and one of them is that uh, exposure during a mammogram can cause it. Um, tell me about that. That's probably the most important one to debunk. Uh, the radiation dose from mammography has consistently decreased over the past 30 years. So it is not to be thought that the radiology community in any way takes the radiation dose lightly. In fact, uh, the American College of Radiology, to which I belong and, and my colleagues belong, has a policy called ALARA, which means as low as reasonably achievable, which means no matter what we do, whether it's a mammogram or a wrist X-ray on a child, we try to make sure that we keep the radiation dose as low as we possibly can. What does that mean? Well, we use the right equipment. We make sure it's calibrated properly. And if we can answer the question with one picture, we take one, not two. If it's five and not six, just to make sure that we limit the radiation dose. To put it in perspective as far as the radiation dose, though, I think it's it's easier to understand if you look at it this way. 
the amount of radiation that a woman receives during a mammogram is about the same as a woman would receive in an airplane flying across the country. Mm. So once you're above the ozone, you're no longer protected from the radiation, cosmic radiation, similar to what x-ray is. And so, you know, women give no thought to that, I think, for the most part. They just, they have to take a trip, they take a trip. And so the mammogram is the same way. It's an extremely low dose, and there are no data that show that it causes uh, breast cancer. Certainly radiation in abnormally high doses, nuclear explosion will World War II would prove that will cause cancer. There's no question. But we're we're so far removed. It's it's an infinitesimal amount con- compared to even an overexposure during a mammar- during a, a CAT scan. Yeah. What about a link to hormone replacement therapy or oral contraceptives? It's been brought up that there um, may be a link, but again, data don't really support that. There are risks from both of those therapies, and what I routinely advise my patients is to continue to have the discussion with their um, obstetrician or gynecologist, primary care physician. And if those medications are being uh, uh, prescribed appropriately, there's no reason to stop them. It's not uh, going to decrease their risk of breast cancer in a way that would outweigh the reason they're taking the medication in the first place. Right. We are talking with Dr. Daniel Rubine. He is with MamoSafe, a mobile mammography um, unit. I guess one of the main things, uh, the, the best preventions, I guess, or not the best preventions, but one of the best ways to combat breast cancer is to find it early. It is. Early detection is the key. Uh, the statistics show that uh, the size of the tumor does matter. Uh, for instance, uh, breast cancer is divided, uh, as many cancers are, into four stages, one through four the stage four being more advanced and the stage one being the least advanced. So a tumor, for instance, a breast cancer that's confined to one breast and is less than two centimeter, about less than an inch in size, is by definition a stage one cancer. That can have a cure rate up to 95%. This is remarkable. I mean, for and, you know, oncologists don't use the word cure uh, very carelessly. When they say cure, they mean there's a potential for the woman to receive treatment and then old age is the thing to fear, not the cancer. And uh, certainly it's a lot to go through. It should never be minimized in terms of what a woman has to deal with, even with a stage one cancer. But the key is that it's reasonable to be hopeful. There's mm-hmm. not, it, this is not uh, unreasonable when people look at it and say, well, here are the statistics, and it's a very good chance you could have this positive outcome if we do X, Y, and Z. What size can you find down to? Three or four millimeters. I mean, we're talking, you know, virtually a few pin prick, a few uh, pencil points stuck together. That you wouldn't be able to feel. You cannot feel them. And, and in a mem- self-exam. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, self-exam is very important. Uh, I tell women all the time that it's really the only thing we have between your annual mammogram and your annual uh, clinical exam by your doctor. It's that self-exam. And I cannot count the number of women, honestly, over the past 20 plus years who've come in and said, I feel something different. And they point right at it. And it's a cancer. Really? Many, I was going to ask you yeah. if you do, yeah. Many times it's not, and that's fine. I always tell women, if we're not going to do something when you find something, we shouldn't ask you to look. We hope it's normal. I would love for someone to come in and say, I feel something here, and I'm worried about it, and then I do all the exams, and it's normal. Great. I'm happy with that. I don't want it to be a cancer. But if it is, we want to find it early. And your point is very well taken in terms of things that women can't feel. A prime example is calcifications. These show up as little white dots on a mammogram. Virtually every woman's mammogram will have those dots. They're almost like moles on the skin. The key, though, is, is two things. One is what they look like, and two is how they're arranged. So if they have certain 
morphology, shapes that we look at, broken arrows, things like that. We don't like that. So that's we're usually going to biopsy. The other thing is how do they arrange themselves, meaning if they're in a tight little group and you can take a little pen and draw a little tight circle around them, we call those grouped. And those we generally have to look at very carefully. And I, I, I liken it to five teenagers standing on a playground, and they're all, you know, looking inside, inward. You want to know what's on the ground. What are they, what are they doing there? You know, so that's the <laughs> same idea. Yeah. Um, tell me about how breast implants affect a mammogram, because there are a lot of women who have them. Yes. Bre- breast implants, first of all, do not increase the risk of breast cancer, whether they're saline or silicone. The only thing that... Uh, perhaps as a caveat or something to be concerned about as far as uh, breast implants is that there is a small portion of the breast tissue that's in the way, way back that we're not able to see once uh, implants are put in. However, if the risk were so great that we were missing cancers because of that, people would not be putting in breast implants anymore. So it's not, I get that question quite often. You know, women often, uh, many surgeons will get a mammogram before the uh, implant. It's fairly common practice. Even if the mammogram, the last mammogram was only six months ago, but they're doing the procedure tomorrow, they're going to want a mammogram like within about 30 days because they don't want to put a ma- you know the breast implant in and then find out later that there's a cancer. So we do those, and when I'm doing those exams, women often ask, they say, should I, is this okay? I mean, should I do this? I say, yeah, I mean, if you've, if you've checked it with your doctor and you, it's something you've gone through as a mental process and it's something you want to have done and you're comfortable with the surgeon and all that, there's no reason not to do it. You're not going to be hurting yourself or putting yourself at risk. Yeah. Can you address the fear that a lot of women have about a mammography being painful? Yes, I can. And I have to be honest, it uh, is something that is uncomfortable. It ain't Uh, fun. No, it is not fun. And uh, given any reason, I think any any normal person would try to avoid it. Uh, however, there is a difference between unco- uncomfortable, perhaps it's a fine distinction, but there's a difference between being uncomfortable and frankly painful. Mammograms that are frankly painful, where, where it's so much that a woman can't tolerate the compression and or she leaves with bruises, which I have seen happen, not in my practice, but I have seen happen, that's inappropriate because pressing harder doesn't make a good picture. What it takes is an experienced technologist, and this is not something that I as a radiologist have any experience in. I don't do the mammograms. But the women who do the mammograms, they're registered, licensed technologists, and the ones that have experience and and are very good at it, which is most of them, frankly, they um, know the level of compression that allows me to get a good image to look at and the amount that the patient can tolerate. So those are the two key things. And I, I really have yet to see at least in, in my practice over many, many years, any woman who couldn't get through the mammogram. I mean, yeah. some are more sensitive than others, but that's something the technologist has to take into account. And sometimes there'll be a note that says, you know, the patient really could only tolerate this much compression. And if I believe the image is adequate from a diagnostic standpoint, we're done. Yeah. If I don't, then we'll have to figure something out. We may have to bring the woman back and maybe do it in a little different fashion or something, but that's a very, very small minority of people. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize how a mammogram works. Can you kind of quickly just explain what happens? Certainly. Um, Once the woman is in the room uh, with the female uh, mammography technologist, uh, the the exam is done one breast at a time. The woman is basically standing in front of a machine that has two plastic plates. And the female technologist will position the breast between those two plates in two different planes. One is from straight up and down, and one is kind of from an angle from the side. And it's basically two images on each side. So you take two pictures of the right breast, two pictures of the left breast, and that's a routine mammogram. Uh, and in between those, the compression is released. And, the, you know, the technologist will ask the woman, you okay? You ready to go to the next one? 
usually they'll say yes. And so the whole process of the actual mammogram just takes a few minutes, uh, but it does require basically four sets of compression, two on each side. Okay. I noticed that we're sitting here talking about when the woman, the woman goes in, the woman this. It's not always women, is it? Not always women. The uh, quoted statistic is that breast cancer affects uh, 1%. One out of 100 breast cancers will be in men. My experience has been less than that, that it's less than that. But we, but I do see men on a fairly regular basis. I have, I'd say, probably one or two a week I'll see men. And uh, almost invariably, uh, they do come in with a lump, and they do have a lump. Uh, but the lump is from something called gynecomasty, which is a long word for formation of female breast tissue in a male. Why does it happen? Eh, sometimes we find out, sometimes we don't. If it's uh, critical to know... The doctor can order a number of hormonal tests and then show that the estradiol level is abnormal or something like that. They usually don't order those tests because it doesn't really change what we're going to do. In my practice, I usually uh, evaluate it. I talk to the man, tell him that's what I think it is. Many people let him go at that point. They say, just forget about it. You're okay. Don't worry about it. I usually have him come back once in six months just so I can see them one more time because often, as mysteriously as it comes up, it goes away. So I like to see them one more time. They come back and say, you know what, doc, it's the same. Or no, it got smaller. It's not bothering me anymore. That's all I want to hear. If it got bigger or it changed in some way, we might have to look at it again. Rarely does it come to biopsy. I think I've biopsied two such uh, lesions over the past many years, neither of which came back as cancer. They were just gynecomastia with unusual features uh, on the imaging. Yeah, it's pretty rare to get. It is, to get. There's no recommendation for a man to get a mammography no. un- unless they feel it. Correct. Or- see something there. Uh, It is, of course, October uh, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It's Pink October. Do you, of course, you're busy during October, but are you busy all the time and throughout the year? I wish we were as busy the other 11 months of the year. In fact, uh, Matt would say, if we we say uh, it's where breast cancer, where every month is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. That's kind of our our slogan. Uh, So no, we're not quite as busy, but we're constantly reaching out. And what we find is that uh, it's really the communication. We have many corporate partners in the Houston area, uh, many of whom, many of which are Fortune 500 companies that uh, understand the uh, need for this, the importance, and they support their employees taking that 15 or 20 minutes instead of a half personal day to go and get the mammogram. So we work with uh, companies, as I said, with nonprofits, with schools, universities. We do probably a dozen independent school districts in the area uh, on an annual basis, um, so it's it's an important thing to do, and it does take uh, an effort on our part to keep it in the forefront the other 11 months of the year. Are there um, uh, organizations that, through you, do uh, mammography for people who maybe don't have insurance or can't afford it? Or, Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, we do. Okay. Uh, there are many organizations in Houston uh, that receive grants, and then it's up to them to choose a quote-unquote vendor in that uh, terminology. I hate to reduce it to that, but that's kind of what it is. And we've been fortunate by uh, partnering with uh, some organizations uh, like that, such as Sisters Network and Hope Clinic, uh, among many others, uh, that uh, we, we, we provide a good service. That's the bottom line. We treat every woman the same. You know, on any given day, if we're doing three three women who are under, un, uninsured and seven women who are insured, there's no way that either one would know the status of the other. Yeah. And that's just the way it should be. And as far as I'm concerned, it's just a person who needs help, whether they're paying one way or another. And we just make sure they get the right thing done, and we we follow them uh, through to whatever steps they need to follow. Do you give them the results then, or do they? Do you look at them? Do you, do you wait and send them to somebody else? 
No, actually, I read all the mammograms uh, for MammoSafe. Uh, whether we give the results right then or not depends. Uh, it actually opens up a good uh, segue for me to just briefly mention the difference between screening mammography and diagnostic mammography. Mm-hmm. Screening mammography, as you might imagine, it means a woman who has no breast problems. She's 42 years old, does regular self-exams, hasn't noticed anything. Her exam by her doctor was normal, but she still needs to have a mammogram. So no problem, you're just going in for a test. Diagnostic mammogram, on the other hand, where I would give the patient the results right then, uh, is a situation where the patient has some issue. She felt a lump. The doctor felt a lump. Maybe her screening mammogram was read as what we call category zero, which means not necessarily abnormal, but it needs more evaluation. That's what a category zero means. So that becomes a diagnostic mammogram. And in that case, we do need a you know written order from the doctor, and then we'll do mammography and or breast ultrasound to work it out. Most of the time, that turns out not to be due to breast cancer. It's often a breast cyst or a benign tumor, something called a fibroadenoma. Uh, but when it does turn out to be a breast cancer, then obviously we have steps we have to follow after that. So, And then do you have discussions with what happens next if you go through something like that and find something or you're talking to them? We do, actually. Um, it's uh, It can be a very uh, delicate uh, uh, discussion, but it's one that uh, I find my colleagues are, are perfectly happy for me to have with the patient. You know, I always try to be respectful of the fact that the patient has a primary care physician and that, that physician or healthcare provider needs to un- know everything that's going on. So we're very careful about sending all the results to the appropriate people. The patient gets a letter, even though she may have spoken with me, she's still going to get a letter that outlines the fact that X, Y, or Z needs to happen. Uh, but yeah, we talk about it in general terms uh, because Another important thing to realize is that there's not just one type of breast cancer, many, many different types. The pathologists are better at enumerating those than I. Uh, and they're also not, there's also not one treatment for breast cancer. Uh, two women sitting in a waiting room, one may get surgery followed by chemotherapy and be done. Another may get radiation to reduce the size of the tumor, then surgery to remove it, and then chemotherapy to complete the, the treatment. So these are very specific uh, protocols that are designed for each person. And you'll see from, I mean, I've received copies of the oncologist notes, and it's two pages. I mean, they're going through every single solitary issue that could come up before they make a recommendation to say, this is what I think would be the best treatment for you. And then they talk to the patient. I don't mean to speak for them, but they speak to the patient. They say, this is what I recommend. These are some of the statistics I can share with you. Let's make a decision about what the best thing to do for you is. We have been talking with Dr. Daniel Rubine with MammaSafe. If somebody's listening and they want to book you, they want to bring the van in, they want to ask you some questions, talk to you some more, or maybe even get involved and help donate and bring them in for their employees or whatever, how do they get a hold of you? Best thing to do is uh, look at the website. It's mammosafe.com. There's an easy uh, click to partner with us and what you describe is exactly the kind of people we're looking for, either an employer that wants to provide it for their uh, employees or an organization that thinks they uh, want to have an event or just anywhere there are 30 women that need a mammogram. So we do, as I said, everything from Fortune 500 companies down to you know, small, uh, relatively small company in Crosby that has uh, 50 employees, 38 of whom are women, and all of those are over 40. It's just they're a very family, it's a family type thing. you know. So we do we go out there every year. So... We do appreciate when they reach out to us and try to be as accommodating as we can as far as dates and that kind of thing. And it's mammosafe.com. That's correct. Thank you very much, Dr. Daniel Rubine. I appreciate you coming in. Detection, early detection is the key here, isn't it? Absolutely. Makes a big difference. Okay. Well, thank you very much. My name is Susie Hanks, and you've been listening to FYI.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.